electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Welcome here to The Exchange. And it's a pretty ugly session in the markets today. Target log- logging, I should say, its biggest earnings miss since 1996, just a day after Walmart had its worst trading session since 1987. And we have an exclusive interview with famed value investor Jeremy Grantham, who warns these declines are signs that the market overall still has a lot further to drop. Before we get to that, let's first get to Dom Chu with the latest color on these markets. We are down, what, almost 900 at the lows, Dom? Right. And the last three days and the three-day winning streak the Dow has seen, we gained 920-some points during that span. So we've pretty much lost the vast majority of it, given the losses that we've seen just in the first half of trading today. To put that in context, over 800 points was the low of the day. We're down just about 800 points right now for the Dow Industrials, 31,859. Now decently below the 4,000 mark for the S&P, 39.72, down about 116 handles, nearly 3% declines. And to give you an idea of the trading range so far today, at the highs of the session, we were down 37 points in the S&P 500, down roughly 137 points at the lows. So just kind of give you an idea, 130 points rather, at the lows to kind of give you an idea of what's happening right now in the NASDAQ composite. No surprise, the underperformer given some of the weakness in technology stocks today, down 400 points, 11,580 the last trade there. Again, three and one-third percent declines. Retail, you mentioned Target and Walmart. The sentiment is having wide-ranging ripple effects across the entire industry and the markets overall. Dollar Tree, on the discount side of things, is off 17% in trading right now. Dollar General is down roughly 12%. Same thing for Costco, a multi-multi-billion dollar market value retailer. Even Best Buy is down 9%, but it's not all bad for the retailer side of things. Off-price retail. TJX Companies is actually up 9% on a better-than-expected earnings report. That's carrying Ross stores, by the way, up with it. So watch the off-price versus some of these big-box retailers. And then if you want to check out maybe indicative of the sentiment overall in retail right now, check out BJ's Wholesale. Not in the S&P 500, but it's down 15% right now, kind of commensurate with the rest of retail. But the reason why I want to focus on this one here is BJ's Wholesale, over the last year, up 11%. It reports earnings tomorrow. So do you think, Kelly, that there are some at least scarring by traders who got burned on Walmart and then got burned again by Target, now taking it out on some other companies who have yet to report results? So with BJ's Wholesale, Kelly, down 15 percent, watch for some extra volatility around this stock after earnings tomorrow, given the sharp declines we've seen today, I'll send things back over. I hear what you're saying. You're saying don't take it out on Costco. <laughs> well, I, I'm saying that everybody is getting taken out to the woodshed, so to speak. They absolutely Given, given are. what's happened right now. Yeah, Dom, thank you very Got much. It. We appreciate it, Dom Chu. Now to my exclusive discussion with legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham. Grantham has been warning that stocks were not only in a bubble, they were in a super bubble. And as we watch the market unwind, his warnings are looking prescient. And the first part of our discussion today, I asked him if he still thinks the market could have another 40 to 50 percent to fall even after the declines we've seen. The other day we were down 19.9 on the S&P and about 27 on Nasdaq. I would say 
that at a minimum, we are likely to do twice that. And um, if we're unlucky, which is quite possible, we would do uh, three legs like that. And it might take a couple of years, as, as it did in 2000. This, this bubble superficially looks, anyway, looks very much like 2000, focused on US tech, led by NASDAQ going to incredible highs, with the opening weakness in NASDAQ, which started to fall along with the Russell 2000 long before the S&P did, exactly like 2000. And uh, what I fear is that there are a couple of differences with 2000 that are more serious. One of them is that 2000 was exclusively in US stocks. The bonds were great, the yields were terrific, housing was cheap, commodities were well-behaved. In comparison, uh, it was paradise. What you never want to do in a bubble is mess with housing. And we're selling at a higher multiple of family income than we did at the top of the so-called housing bubble of 2006. In, in addition, the bond market recently had the lowest lows in the history of man in 6,000 years of history. And in addition, energy has pushed up, metals and the food prices are actually on the UN index higher than they have ever been before in real terms. So we are really messing with with all of the assets. And this has turned out historically to be very dangerous. In Japan, they did housing and the stock market in 1989, the mother really of all equity bubbles and land bubbles. And they still haven't reached 1989 prices in either their stock market or their land market. And uh, we messed a little bit like that in the housing bubble. Uh, we had the housing bubble, we had oil that had just gone to 100 over 100 again, and so on. And, uh, and we had very high priced stocks. Although I didn't think it was a, a true bubble back in, in 2007. But the combination of stocks and housing uh, proved really quite deadly. And we would have had a very severe recession. Uh, we had a pretty bad one anyway, and we were saved by unprecedented government uh, bailouts which of course he thinks will be more complicated now because of inflation. So I asked him whether he thought some selective names like mega cap tech would be more attractive here. You've got Alphabet trading at 20 times forward earnings, Apple at just 23 times, for instance. His answer, don't be so sure that these earnings estimates will hold up. It's a warning he extends not just to big tech, but to the broader economy, as the history of bubbles bursting is a problem for all profit margins. I only specialize in what I call the really great bubbles. If you go back to 1929 to 2000, uh, to Japan, and, and the housing, the housing part of the housing bubble, and you ask, how did conditions look? Profit margins looked great. The forecast was great. There was no chance of a, of a recession. A few months ago, smart people were saying there was a 20% chance of a recession in three years. I mean, it is quite amazing. And what happens after the bubbles break is there's always a recession pretty quickly. And um, people never get it. People never forecast it. And, and along with the recession comes a drop in profit margins. Canva presents unexplained appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Going into the bubbles breaking, profit margins are always at a peak. Bubbles don't peak for no reason. They peak because economic conditions are nearly perfect. And that includes low inflation and high profit margin. And uh, the first thing to go in a recession, of course, is the profit margin. And um, that, that is very likely to happen this time. We should be in a recession, mild or severe is the question. But we should be in some sort of recession fairly quickly. And profit margins from a real peak have a long way that they can decline. And if you want to get into the longer term, I, I think this kind of 2000 bubble that we have is dangerously likely to morph into the 1970s, where inflation is always a part of the background discussion and where growth rate starts to dwindle away. So you have shades of stagflation as we had in the 70s, where commodities are intermittently scarce, price jags here and there, as we have seen recently, where the whole system is so strung out and so borrowed that it's lost its resilience. All you have to do is cough in COVID or a war in the Ukraine, and you see the problems ricocheting around the system that was not designed to absorb any kind of punch, last minute inventory delivery, you know, no reserves, putting all of your business with one country far away, uh, no flexibility, no resilience. And now we begin to pay the price. We will have more from that interview a little bit later on, including where Grantham sees opportunity. So it's not all grim, <laughs> although it's pretty grim in the market right now with the Dow down more than 900 points. Let's get some more detail now on the profit margin collapse that Target is reporting and warning about for the coming months. Similar to what we saw with Walmart yesterday, Target shares again are down 26 percent right now. My next guest says we're seeing recessionary behavior amongst low-income consumers. Joining me now is Mark Astrakhan. He's consumer and retail analyst at Stiefel. Mark, it's great to have you. And um, why wasn't this picked up more in the weekly data? Why, you know, this is one question people have is how were we caught so off guard? Yeah, thanks for having me. I, I think we caught the, the discretionary spending weakness, maybe softening demand, slowing, you know, that, that sort of thing, if you will. But I think the big surprise the last couple of days is just the overall inflationary environment and the impact on the cost of these businesses, specifically the gross margin. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting if you kind of take a step back and look at the broader consumer uh, portfolio, if you will, of companies that have already reported, you know, we cover consumer staples in addition to the discretionary names. And 
you know, clearly the theme across staples, you know, from Proctor's and Colgate's and SD Lauder's of the world is the gross margins are pressured, the supply chain, logistics, freight, everything that you can imagine is, is going to be pressured and they're all taking price to offset it. So, you know, in hindsight, we should have seen probably more of that coming from a retailer standpoint. But, you know, we, we did see the demand weakening a little bit, but we just didn't see the costs. Sure. And maybe what we could say is that for some of those higher end names you mentioned, they're passing along costs or they're somehow able to absorb it. But for Walmart and Target, especially, they seem to emphasize the lower income shopper as well, where they really can't take the price, can they? I think that's going to be the biggest question going forward. You know, previous guests have been talking about this as well in terms of where the economy is going to go. Our own survey work has, has showed for a while now, A, that, that the consumer is softening sort of broadly across the U.S., but B, that the lower income consumer is the one that's most impacted. In fact, if you look at overall discretionary spending intentions, they're negative and have been negative for the lowest income consumer. So that's clearly the biggest watch point. And then you put much higher gas prices, just frankly, everything across the board, but gas prices, food inflation, et cetera. And obviously that's going to squeeze them more because they have less discretionary spending and less just overall income to spread across other categories. So that's probably the biggest watch point at this point relative to the consumer. So you think the biggest watch point is gasoline prices from here? I think gas prices is certainly a big one. It's not huge in terms of overall spending. I think we put it at somewhere in the low single digits as a percent of total household expenditure, but obviously it's much higher if you're talking about a median income consumer of just under 60000 per year in the U.S. So that's a concern, but, but everything is a concern. You think about inflation, broadly, these consumer staples companies are passing along mid to high single digit types of price increases. Some companies are on their fourth and even fifth rounds of pricing across things that people use every day. So even if you're talking about staying at home more because of what's going on in the broader macro environment, the cost of staying at home and eating is still higher than it was. So not just gas. It's, it's literally everything that you're buying from a day-to-day standpoint that you need. Target, I think, surprises people because we've seen some data points that maybe Home Depot, even Lowe's, Container Store holding up relatively well. And Target does a lot of that mix. So why was it that they were impacted by the same issues as Walmart? I mean, is it food? Is it uh, that that shopper is more exposed to Target than we would have realized? And maybe you can extend that to Dollar General's declines today, which is when you know, they benefit from discretionary spend. If we're in an environment where, you know, consumers are only walking in for the bare essentials, then perhaps that explains the nervousness and the stock price decline. Yeah, I, I think it's probably a couple of things. You've got to separate the, the, the top line and the comparable store sales growth from the cost side of things. You know, if you take a look at, at, at Target, you take a look at what Walmart said, probably fears on some of the other stocks you mentioned, Costco as well today, that the inventory levels here are really bloated. And one of the biggest issues for, for Target today and Walmart yesterday was the gross margin contraction is coming in part from promotions and markdowns on those products that are sitting on the books. You know, I was playing with some numbers earlier. It's, it's kind of amazing to think about it. So inventories for Target, for example, are up 43% year on year. They're up 8% sequentially. And if you compare that to pre-pandemic, so this April quarter 22 versus April, 20, or April 2019, inventories are up 66%. But revenues are only up 43%. So I think what you had was a situation where a lot of these retailers, given what was going on in the world at the end of last year, were just ordering so much product because they were fearful of having out of stocks on shelves that they were just sitting there saying, okay, we'd rather, we'd rather have product on shelf at a higher cost than lose that sale. And so the problem is now you've got the consumer potentially softening. Obviously, looking back at April and, and the quarter, March, April, especially as you're lapping some of the stimulus from the prior year, the consumer just wasn't spending on discretionary purchases. You throw on top of that inflation, so gas and food that we just talked about being more expensive, and there's just less money to spend. 
So now you've got inventories that are just massively up and these retailers are going to have to do something about that. And I think it's interesting too, that as, as we sit here today and what Walmart and Target said to us the last couple of days is they expect those inventories to be reduced or to a much better level over the next two quarters. I think the important piece and really the big question mark there is that assumes a normal consumer environment. So if we do dip True. into recession, if discretionary spending remains weak, it's going to be a question of whether it takes another couple of quarters to draw down that inventory and how much are you going to have from a markdown standpoint or inventory impairment that's going to continue to hurt the gross margins. So I think that's what the market is looking at today and is most fearful of. It's fascinating. I, I really appreciate the granularity on the inventory levels and what's going on there. So final question, we're in the middle of this retail earnings season right now, so you can't, you know, I don't think you have time to go redo the models on every name you cover, but how, what do you think your, your early conclusions are from what we've heard so far? I mean, you, does this change, you know, price targets and re-ratings? I mean, this is, this is a pretty big change, isn't it? It, it, it is. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't taking a look at a whole bunch of other uh, company estimates and models this morning. It frankly makes me go back and look at the consumer staple stocks and say, I think I'd rather own some of those names, those, those that I think are just better positioned that can, can offset what's going on in the economy that tend to be insulated from a consumer standpoint. Names like a monster beverage that makes energy drinks or an international flavors and fragrances that sits there and can pass through pricing and is agnostic from a consumer standpoint as long as people are buying stuff. Um, it's just a harder environment, I think, from a retailer standpoint. That's what we've learned the last couple of days. Absolutely. Two really unique names as well for people looking for some, some ones to explore right now. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Mark Astrakhan. You just heard him mention gas prices. Let's dig a little deeper into that. As it gets even worse at the gas pump, Americans are now paying $4.57 on average to fill up. It's a record high, with every state now averaging at least $4 a gallon for the first time ever. Diesel prices, even worse. According to a new survey, a new all-time high of $5.58 and already causing layoffs and strain at small trucking companies vital to the U.S. supply chain. Is there any relief in some or could shortages be next? For more, I'm joined by Kevin Book, managing director at research firm Clearview Energy Partners. Kevin, welcome. And this, first of all, is the gas price higher than it normally would be based on where oil prices are? Yeah, there's a, a wider spread right now, particularly uh, if you go back a few weeks when the oil prices have retreated, the gasoline prices stayed high. That reflects dual shortages, not just a tight crude oil market, but also shortage of refining capacity. Can you explain that a little bit more? How do we get into this situation? Well, part of the situation has to do with inefficiency in the refining fleet, and part of it has to do with COVID. Uh, roughly 3 million barrels per day of global refining capacity shut down in 2020 and 2021. Uh, of course, demand rebounded, uh, and so we find ourselves short of the processing capacity to refine crude oil into products like diesel and gasoline. Uh, part of that is a rationalization. It takes a while to build and expand refining capacity. So you won't see an immediate response despite the shortage. Uh, but of course, demand came roaring back and uh, inventories for diesel, as you mentioned, 22 uh, percent lower year on uh, versus the five year average uh, for this time of year. And uh, gasoline down 8 percent versus the five year average. Uh, those are pretty significant deficits. Are we likely to see shortages or outages? Well, absolute shortages and interruptions in supply are, are pretty rare these days. Uh, right now, if you think about the, the sort of shortage in the world, though, uh, energy writ large, uh, coal, oil, natural gas, electricity made from primary sources, it's all short because Russian energy is going off the market. So we have essentially a, a structural inventory problem that's turning into a secular shortage. Uh, the more we push Russian oil or gas or coal or anything off the market with political and geopolitical action, 
the tighter it gets. And we're kind of stuck because if the U.S. economy hangs in there, then the shortages could become more of a problem. If the economy, it's it's sort of a lose-lose. You know, you either get possible shortages or you have a a worsening economy. What could D.C. do about this uh, specifically to get to at the refining issue and try to narrow that spread so that at least gas prices aren't trading any higher than they otherwise should be? Yeah, there's very few tools, of course, to bring on capacity. If there were some sort of autonomous pool of gasoline they could pull from, and they have one, but it's very small and won't make a difference, then perhaps there could be something. There are a few changes they could make to the, the fuel specifications that are required by the Environmental Protection Agency. They've already made one of them is to allow E15, ethanol blended at 15%, uh, essentially year-round. That's a very small change. There's other air waivers they could explore, but you're going to get 100% environmental pushback for single percentage point changes in pump price at best. Uh, some of the other changes involve the Jones Act, uh, which uh, requires U.S. flagged crude and manufactured tankers coastwise trade, allowing foreign tankers to carry gasoline from the Gulf of Mexico to the East Coast ports. Again, a big political headache, maybe a lot of uh, a lot of pain for not much uh, juice squoze. So uh, in the end, the refining capacity issue uh, doesn't have a lot of short term solutions. One thing that does not help uh, talking about gouging and scaring away capital investment. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot of that, however. That's where D.C. is going. Well, I think the concern is they could scare away the supply while at the same time passing gas tax cuts that increase demand. So you, you know, greatly worsen the problem. But in the meantime, we're sort of uh, stuck with a situation where prices are, are you think they're likely to keep going higher every day? I mean, structurally, could we hit $5 or $6 a gallon for gas? Well, that depends an awful lot on the shape of whether or not we see a real embargo of Russian oil and whether it doesn't go to other ports or markets. Uh, The the possibility is certainly out there on a major outage of that sort. Uh, It also is possible that because of some of the other factors in in the world, we could see a refinery fire or outage uh, that could limit refining capacity in a big way. So yeah, it's it's certainly in the realm of possibility. So final question, what do you think the impact is likely to be on the economy and consumer? Because obviously in inflation-adjusted terms, we're still below where we peaked in 2008. Uh, but we're getting closer and closer with every passing day to what could end up being highs in real terms and in, in what people are spending here. And this is the grimmest part of it all, because so much of gasoline demand consumption is inelastic and most so for those people who have to drive to work and, and to school, uh, usually the lower income folks who have jobs they have to attend in person have least flexibility. So uh, you, what you're talking about is a um, percentage of disposable personal income per capita. We're at about three and three point one percent right now which is up a lot, up uh, from 0.85% at the April 2020 troughs, fast acceleration. And effectively, you think of it as a tax on consumption writ large. Uh, but it's also well below where we were if you look at the, the, the late 70s, uh, 7% thereabouts. So you could say, well, it's not so bad. But truly it is. The rate of change has been so, so fast. And so many people had government money in their pockets. They've now got smaller, walk- smaller wallets and bigger gasoline bills. So bad news. Absolutely. Well said, Kevin. We will leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Kevin Book joining me from Clearview. Speaking of gas prices and diesel prices as well, the transport stocks are getting hit pretty hard today. Let's get over to Frank Holland for the latest on those moves. Frank? Yeah, Kelly, I mean, right now looking at the Dow transports, you see they are down today. Obviously, the entire market's down, but transports in particular really impacted by several things. One, which you were just talking about, the price of gas. Number two, uh, some of the earnings that we've seen earlier today from companies like Target and also from Walmart. Um, Some of that's weighing on the entire sector. So let's look at some of the biggest names in transports. We're talking about UPS, 
FedEx, CH Robinson, JB Hunt, Night Swift. Those are two of the largest truckers in the United States. Right now, you're seeing the CH Robinson down about 5.5%, was down even deeper earlier. That's the biggest freight forwarder into the U.S. from China. A lot of port lockdowns over in China. A lot of concerns about the increased fuel cost of shipping. J.B. Hunt, the biggest container shipper from the port of L.A., Long Beach, also hit by not only concerns about fuel costs, even though it may not completely impact them, but also slowdowns of freight coming into the country. The package delivery companies also impacted, hit by some thoughts about consumer demand. Then you look at truckers that address big box stores like a Target, a Walmart, a Lowe's, or a Home Depot. You see their shares are down even harder. Old Dominion, that is a less than truck load player. They really help companies who have different sized loads fit into one truck, falling very hard because if there's not as much demand, there's not as much demand for that service. Different companies putting different loads into the truck. Some of the other truckers for big box companies like Saya also hit very hard by this. If you're not going to Home Depot, you're not going to Lowe's as much. Obviously, less demand for their services. Overall, down transports, again, down more than the broader market because a lot of concerns about consumer demand, which fuels transports, and also gas prices, even though a lot of these companies can actually pass along increased gas prices to their companies to their customers, excuse me. Back over to you. Yeah, look at that almost 7% drop in the Dow Transports. Frank, thanks for highlighting that for us, our Frank Holland. And stocks are at session lows more broadly with the Dow down 960 points now and the NASDAQ dropping more than 4%. The NASDAQ is down almost 500 points to 11,500. Every sector's in the red, consumer discretionary and staples, both down about 6%. There's your weakest areas. Uh, energy relatively holding up better. Energy and industrials both down only about 3%. The mega cap names all lower today with Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla. Tesla's down 7% to 708 right now. Uh, there's Apple at 142, down almost 5% now. And retail, some of the worst pain after that target miss. Uh, it's down 26% now. Walmart is down another almost 7% today. Best Buy down 11%. Bath and Body Works five below at 52-week lows as well. It's not all red, though. In retail, the off-price brands like TJX are the names leading the XRT at the moment. TJX is up almost 9%. Burlington and Ross Stores positive as well. The retail ETF, though, is down 10% in May. It's worst month since the pandemic, March 2020, and its longest monthly losing streak since 2007. And have to mention that crypto is slumping again with Bitcoin down to about 28,000 and change. Coinbase, MicroStrategy, Silvergate Capital all suffering as well. Coinbase trading below $64 a share. With rates on the rise, uh, rise, I should say, or the move today, we did see the 10-year briefly go over 3%. Now it's all the way back below 290. Let's get to Rick Santelli for the latest action, including the bond auction this hour. Rick? Yes, it is unbelievable. You know, when we consider prior to the latest news regarding the war in Ukraine and some of the COVID issues, we remember well that the big hedge against a big drop in equity prices was always to get long treasuries. But then we went through that nasty time where the Fed did its pivot, was much more worried about inflation, and rates went up, prices down, and stocks prices went down. Well, maybe that's changed. Look at a two-day chart of 10s. Yes, yesterday, right around 2.96% is where the 10-year yield was when the chairman started talking at that Wall Street Journal uh, conference. And what we learned was that interest rates popped on that, but they didn't last long. Whether it was a two-year note or a 10-year note, they've dropped below those levels and they've gained speed as the equity markets have continued to drop. As you look at a one-month chart, a couple things should jump out. 
First of all, our high intraday trade was 3.20 on the 9th of May. And our high yield close is about five basis points below that. But to think that we got briefly above 3% only to be pushed back down by an influx of buying when equities went down really may change the dynamic. And it really is relevant that there's much more of a two-way trade in the Treasury complex as the increased volatility in equities has become a more permanent issue. Back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you very much. Now let's get over to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Tyler. Hey, Kelly. Thank you very much. Within the last half hour, a ceremony to mark the official resumption of operations at the U.S. Embassy in Kiev. American diplomats returned to the country 10 days ago uh, after they were evacuated as Russia invaded in late February. Reopening the embassy is meant to underline Russia's failure to capture Ukraine's capital in the first phase of the war. A report from an environmental group estimates air, water, and toxic chemical pollution continues to cause around 9 million premature deaths every year. That's roughly one out of every six deaths annually in the world. The report says more than 90% of pollution-related deaths are in low- and medium-income countries. And President Biden's daughter has tested positive for COVID, but it is not considered a close contact right now to her parents. The White House says Ashley Biden's diagnosis forced her to cancel plans to travel with her mother, Jill Biden, on a foreign trip. Tonight on the News with Shep Smith, why the Midwest is running out of dirt, Kelly, for farming. Running out of dirt now? Running out of dirt. <sighs> Who knew? A dirt short. Everything is in short supply. Everything. Baby formula, cat food, dirt. I know. I guess dirt's not an option uh, no. to feed this little one. Tyler, thank you very much. See you. We'll see you soon. Still ahead, Jeremy Grantham says inflation is not going away on its own, and the Fed is completely hamstrung. You don't want to miss this next part of my conversation with the famed value investor. The Nasdaq's down more than 4% right now, and the Dow's down about 990 points. We're just off that level. We're back in a moment. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.
Welcome back, everybody, to a market that's down 964 points right now. The S&P is down 3.4 percent, and the Nasdaq is down more than 4 percent at this hour. I spoke today with legendary value investor Jeremy Grantham, the chair and chief investment officer at GMO. As concerned as he is about a collapse in stocks and housing, he does not think that will resolve the inflationary problem we're dealing with. In fact, he thinks inflation could stick around for the next couple of decades and that we're running out of labor. Here's what he told me. The Fed are, of course, as everybody knows, completely hamstrung. If everyone is worried about uh, the economy, they are even more worried about inflation. Inflation has always been the great bugbear of of society in general. And uh, it takes precedence over everything else. And you can hear that from this Fed, from from every Fed, really. Uh, they, They have to put that up at the top of the agenda. And that takes away pretty well all the ammunition that they had back in 2000 with Greenspan and in the, uh, and in the housing bust with Bernanke. Uh, they just don't have that flexibility. Rate, rates are still very low. Debt levels are unprecedentedly high. And, and the combination of that with inflation, it's very tricky. They have to tread much more carefully uh, in terms of stimulus than they than they could before in previous bubbles. But it also sounds like what you're saying is that if inflation takes precedence over everything else, then they should solve that so that they can then rescue the economy in the future if they need to. There's, it doesn't help them at all to let the inflation problem stay as bad as it is, right? I mean, I- implicit in what you're saying is that if they have to pick one to focus on, they should make sure they can bring inflation down, unless you think it's going to come down on its own. No, I don't. But I do think that the Federal Reserve sees that point. The question is, they recognize the problem. Have they addressed it? And I would say, in a way, much too slowly. There used to be something called the Taylor Rule that said what kind of rate you would need to deal with what level of inflation. And if you look back at the old Taylor Rule, uh, they they suggest that you should have 9 or 10 percent interest rates, and we barely have an interest rate. Um, in comparison, way, way down below any historical normal, fa- facing over 8% inflation. This is, this is starting way behind. Uh, so there's a lot of catch up to be done. I'm sure the Federal Reserve guys are waking up in the middle of the night sweating about this one. We are running out of labor. Every country in the developed world has been having fewer babies for the last 15 years. So we know basically for the next 15 years, there will be a scarcity of labor cohorts of 20-year-olds entering the market. That every, every single developed country except Israel plus China, this, this is not an inconsiderable part of the global economy. And they're all, shortage, they're all short of labor. The reason we had this, this Goldilocks 20 years, 25 years, is because there were 500 million extra Chinese who went from the farms plugged into a very efficient industrial system. And now, 25 years later, they are short of workers coming in each year, as we are. And if you're short labor, it's going to push up wages, which is good for them because they've been squeezed in America for 30, 40 years, and you're short resources. This, to me, guarantees that inflation will be around for a long time. And when inflation is around for a long time, you have to be reconciled to lower PEs. That's what the history books say. 
And that combination, uh, perhaps combined with lower average profit margins. Profit margins in the last 20 years went 40, 50% above the level that they averaged for the previous 100 years. There were some special uh, Goldilocks factors. Everything was perfect for a while in the capitalist world. And now a lot of that perfection has begun to fade away. Again, that's my conversation today with Jeremy Grantham. The Dow down 994 points at the low of the session so far. The Nasdaq dropping more than 4%. For more on the sell-off, let's bring in Art Hogan. He's the chief market strategist at National Securities. Art, I'll uh, quote again from what we just heard Grantham say, when inflation is going to be around for some time, you have to be reconciled to lower PEs. Uh, What would you say about that and this market today? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. This market has such low liquidity that when we decide to react and and likely overreact to any of the inputs that we've seen, we get these massive moves, both to the upside and to the downside. I think today's another example of that. So I don't think that uh, Jeremy is wrong in saying that uh, we need to think about PEs, but I would argue that if you look at the S&P 500, the multiple contraction that we've already done so far this year, and, and, uh, and you take out the top five names that are all trading somewhere between 24 and 28 times, the, the multiple on the S&P going forward right now is, is about 15 and a half or 16. So to the extent that the multiple contraction in times of inflation or in rising rates makes sense, I just don't think it's as draconian likely as Mr. Uh, uh, Grantham is, is making it out to be. I don't think this is a long-term distortion. I think we're figuring out how we, we get back out and about after a pandemic. And I think a lot of those things are playing into what we've heard in terms of the inputs this week. And to your point, we've seen this massive reset already in valuations in the S&P, like you said, was it, I think, 19 times and has fallen. Uh, if you strip out those names, 15 and a half, you leave them in, maybe we're around 17. So I guess, does that mean, though, that we're at risk of getting stuck here for some time? Yeah, I think that's dependent on on if the natural course of events away from what we do in monetary policy actually brings inflation down. So if we've actually seen a peak in inflation, which we likely did in March, and we see sequential improvement over the course of the second quarter and the second half, and the Fed you know gets to that terminal rate, whether it's two and a half or three percent on the Fed funds rate, can we still generate the kind of uh, um, above mean or mean GDP growth rates? And I think that's our base case. I think this year and next we'll likely have. Um, above mean GDP growth rates this year and probably mean GDP growth rates next year. And I think that's sort of the, you know, kind of the, the, the natural inclination to run around like your hair's on fire because Walmart had some operational issues and got more inventory than they needed and, you know, targeted to. And, and I just think we need to kind of stick to our knitting and remember that the consumer is actually still pretty strong. It's just a function of what they're consuming. They've gone from consuming From consuming uh, goods to services. Is that right? Yeah, goods to services. And I think that is what, you know, got uh, both Walmart and Target, you know, kind of stuck and wrong-footed when they finally got inventory. So I think that this is going to take some adjustments. It's going to be a bumpy road, but I certainly don't think it's quite as, um, you know, the sky is falling as as some would like to have it. Although we have seen, Art, a number of people marking down their year-end forecast. Now we're almost halfway through the year. We're at 3,900 on the S&P. Do you still think 5,000 is achievable? Yeah, it's funny. People are marking down the, their year-end uh, forecast. At the very same time, earnings for the S&P 500 estimates are going higher. So that's the dynamic. It's what's the appropriate multiple for that year-end earnings number that likely will be closer to 240 than it is to 230. And you know, even if you were to put a, a 19 multiple on that, that's we're up 15% from where we are now. So I think that there's the potential. And that would be a trailing multiple. So I think there's a potential that people are just getting to this place where we have both peak inflation and peak panic.
All right, Art Hogan saying, relax, everybody. It's going to be okay. It's great to have you on. We appreciate it today. Thank you very much. As the NASDAQ leads the declines once again, everything from big cap tech to the semis to cloud and software names is under pressure again today. And in fact, my next guest is looking for opportunities to potentially short the chip makers and warns she doesn't see a lot of near-term tech opportunity. Let's welcome back Danielle Shea. She's director of options at Simpler Trading. Danielle, welcome back. So what is your... At what point, let me put it this way as as just a general principle, at what point do the charts look so bad that you want to start uh, buying some of these names? Or is it the opposite, that you have to start seeing better trading behavior before you can possibly start turning bullish? I would have to say that I would have to see better trading behavior, Kelly, because I mean, what we've seen over the course of especially the last six weeks or so, every single time we've seen even a shred of hope to the upside, that hope has just been crushed. You know, we've seen one day short squeeze rallies last week. We did have a really strong day on Friday. Uh, But there was absolutely no follow through. So for me personally, I just have to stick with the direction of the trend, which is down um, until something substantial changes. And down to the extent that you would even think about shorting the semiconductors. Is that right? Yes, Kelly. And the reason for that is because, you know, we've been shorting the ARC names, you know, the the very aggressive names that had these massive rallies. And what we've seen this year is that they haven't been able to hold up in earnings. Right. But at this juncture, we're having a complete valuation reset, even with the major large cap tech names. And, you know, those names are the ones that have been holding up the market. And at this juncture, I mean, we're seeing Tesla, we're seeing NVIDIA, we're seeing AMD just get completely crushed. And when you look at what you can trade in the market right now, that's where liquidity is. And so I hate to say it, but I feel like these companies are continuing to lead the way lower and sticking with that direction is what makes the most sense, even though I'll note it's a little bit aggressive, of course. Sure. And you said you're not going to sell the core tech stocks in your long term portfolio, but there are some ways to kind of protect yourself or be opportunistic. What are those? Yes, that's correct. And, you know, sometimes investors will say, well, I'm confused. You're holding your long term Microsoft. You're holding your AMD stock, but yet you're shorting it. That's because I think it's really important for investors to have a long term and a short term outlook. Okay, so with my AMD stock in particular, I do sell covered calls against that. I'm not going to drop it. But in the short term, you can absolutely sell those covered calls And you can also trade it to the downside, especially in the options market. I also like to invest in some inverse ETFs. So right now I have XOXS. That's going to be the inverse semiconductor ETF. I mean, it definitely helps with some downside, especially when you have high semiconductor exposure in your portfolio. And also, I like to invest in the inverse QQQ, the SQQQ, Um, you know, especially in times of downtime. It does help alleviate some of that pain when you have a long term tech portfolio that you really don't want to get out of. And as we're speaking, the Dow's down more than a thousand points, Danielle. So uh, not to pile on, but that's kind of the theme of the show today. I I want you to just tell everybody your thoughts about a stock like Home Depot, which initially looked better yesterday when it seemed like it was a Walmart execution problem that was bringing down its own shares. Today in retail, now everything's being reconsidered. So what's the trader's take here? 
You know, when you're looking at something like Home Depot, I just think that this is, again, one of the major harrowing events that's occurring in the market. Because, I mean, Home Depot actually had a pretty decent report. The stock rallied. Um, and there was a chance where investors could have said, okay, now let's come in, let's buy Home Depot, the market's down, it could turn around, but that's not what happened. It rallied for one day, hit resistance, and is rolling over. You know, you have the housing market overall that's weak, and I have been shorting Home Depot to the downside. I actually wanted to wait to get through Lowe's earnings because I felt like there was a potential that Lowe's could be strong. But after Lowe's is through, after Home Depot's through, I'm going to continue shorting this to the downside because the overall sector is weak. And the way that it gave up the earnings move is not a positive sign. Let's talk about some of the specs of green on the screens today. TJ Maxx, a parent company, is one example. Even some of the video gaming names were holding up relatively better. Is there anything that excites you right now where you think, you know, this can at least be a port in the storm as the market continues to whatever we call this, sort itself out. You know, we've definitely had some of those strong names. I mean, I'll say Roblox is one of them. I shorted Roblox and I'll tell you, Roblox went against me. And there's been a couple of these names that have just been what I would call honey badgers, where <laughs> they're up when the rest of the market is down because they just don't really care. I think it's fine to come in and try to trade some of those names just on an intraday basis. But the fact of the matter is, is, is really the market has been weighing down all ships. And so what I'm doing as a trader is I'm looking for tickers that are bouncing directly into resistance because with the market on lows, it can be difficult to get some good short positions on. But when you have moments in time like the Home Depot trade going up into resistance yesterday and rallying, that actually will give you a much better opportunity to short something along with the trend. So, I mean, I'm not going to be buying uh, any of these tickers that are kind of up on the day, especially if they're in an overall downtrend. A lot of people hoped we were seeing capitulation last week uh, with some of the really bad uh, trading sessions that we saw. Now we're we picked ourselves up for a few sessions and now we're kind of uh, repeating that all over again. What tells you whether we have hit capitulation or not? You know, I personally don't think that we've seen capitulation, and that's because when I'm following the price action on a daily basis, what I see is regular and consistent selling. I like to follow the ticks. This follows buying versus selling pressure. I like to follow, follow volume in, volume out. Um, what we've seen has just been a regular slow bleed. And what's most important is that it really hasn't hit the core stocks like Microsoft and Apple in the way that it's hit others like Teladoc. So I really don't think that we can capitulate until you see Apple down, I hate to say it, you know, 20, even 30%, because look at the NASDAQ right now. The NASDAQ has fallen already 30% and the Fed is not blinking an eye. So how much lower do you think they're gonna let it go? People will hold on as long as Apple can remain strong because there's hope. But when Apple really starts to break, that is when I believe we'll see capitulation. Do you think that's how much more downside Apple could potentially have? <sighs> I mean, for me, it all depends on what happens with the Fed and what happens at these lows, because right now we're not seeing any buying. 
what has to happen in order for the market to correct to the upside is for investors to feel confidence and for investors to come in and want to pick up Apple and want to pick up Microsoft. But all year we've just seen a slow bleed. So I absolutely do think it's possible that we see, you know, 20 to 30 percent down in Apple, especially because the Fed has pretty much said they have no interest in saving the stock market at this point in time. And investors are accustomed to the Fed coming in and saving us with the Fed put. And I just don't think it's going to happen this time. So my question is, you know, at what point will they save us? I don't know that it's going to happen. Fair enough. And we will leave it there, Danielle. I really appreciate all your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Danielle Shea joining me from Simpler Trading. Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 1,049 points right now. That's 3.2%. We're seeing a 3.6% drop for the S&P, 4.3% now for the NASDAQ, which is down 519 points. And my next guest warned that the Fed tackling inflation would not be pleasant. Let's welcome in David Zervos. He's the chief market strategist at Jefferies. So, David, is a day like today a sign of progress? Uh, I think it's a sign of the process moving forward. Um, you know, it's not a pleasant process, as you and I have discussed, Kelly, now for many months. And um, we just have to kind of, you know, get through it. It's, uh, it's a painful withdrawal of stimulus. We're all very used to stimulus. Stimulus is fun. Stimulus is nice. It cushions us. And when we take it away, uh, markets get a little bit... Uh, jittery. And that's what we're feeling now. And I think it's all very much to be expected. But, uh, you know, things can go wrong. Things can also go right. It's a tricky, it's a tricky time for the market. I really, I really think um, there are some, there are some silver linings that maybe we should talk about. But uh, generally speaking, this is not, this is, this is sort of what you would expect with QT and higher rates. Give me some silver linings, because we could certainly use some right now. Yeah, I thought that would be fun today, uh, rather than try to beat the beat the dead horse when it's almost dying. Um, look, inflation is as nasty and as evil as it is, and, and as redistributive as it is. It has some other potential benefits that we should think about. One is we look at debt to GDP ratios. Last year, for example, nominal GDP grew at twelve percent, the highest since nineteen eighty three, which makes our debt sustainability look a lot better. Um, we usually grow nominal GDP about four or five percent a year to real to inflation. We were at seven inflation and five real. This year we may be five and three, six and two. We could be another eight percent nominal. That really makes uh, debt get devalued, which is positive for balance sheets. It also changes asset valuations. The Buffett statistic is something we always look at, Kelly, which is the total value of the equity market divided by nominal GDP. When nominal GDP is growing really fast, everything looks a little bit easier uh, on the eye because we have the income, the nominal income to support that nominal valuation. So I don't want to get everybody too excited about, yay, inflation's great. But there are some things that inflation does, particularly for a highly levered economy like the United States with a lot of debt and a lot of focus on assets um, that that can be quite quite an elixir as long as the Fed keeps long-term inflation expectations under control, which they have done when we look through to the break-even markets. Well, what you just brought up as a silver lining is for others a big worry spot because they worry, what if D.C. basically 
sort of thinks to itself, okay, maybe we don't really want to tackle inflation because that would send the economy into recession. And if we let inflation go a little bit, hey, it'll be easier to pay down our debt. Look at Treasury receipts this year. I mean, that's a very dangerous game to be playing, isn't it? It is. And as I said, I, I caveat at the end of that, and you're very, very correct in pointing that out. And, and this, is a, this is a very, you know, there's a, there's a fine line that you're drawing here. The Fed has to always maintain the credibility of its commitment to long-term inflation at or around 2%. To the extent that it gets these big jumps up but maintains credibility, that's actually a really positive story much better than a disinflationary or deflationary outcome where a highly indebted society that goes into a big deflationary period starts to really uh, squeal, as we've seen for 30 years in Japan. We don't want to do that. So the Fed has to maintain this long-term credibility. It has done it. I believe it will continue to do it. Jay has been doing, I think, a great job of warning about how tough this is going to be. But we may get through this with inflation expectations well-contained, particularly five-year, five-year and long-term inflation expectations, and some kind of elixir of higher inflation than usual that makes some of those balance sheet issues go away. Final question, does what we just heard from Target and Walmart change this kind of rosy view at all when it appears in some ways that uh, the lower-income consumer is especially under pressure with higher gas prices? Um, you know, or maybe is it just this, this reset from goods to services spending? What do you think is going on there? I think it's a big reset story. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's tough uh, news on the retailers, but it is kind of consistent with what you would expect as the Fed goes into this tightening cycle. And look, the good news for the bottom end of the income distribution um, and, and, the, and the bottom end of the workforce is that we have two job openings for every person looking for a job. Used to be back in my day, when we were starting out and earning minimum wage or a little above it, when I was a kid, we'd sometimes get two jobs, Kelly, and we'd work <laughs> at night just to kind of, you know, get a little bit further ahead. Maybe, you know, maybe we'll go back to that a little bit. Maybe it's actually not so bad that, you know, people are going to be looking at some of those jobs that, that we need in the in the service sector and the leisure and hospitality sector. Maybe we'll stop, uh, you know, stop creating these jobs like meme librarians or whatever it is that's on the web now that seems to be... Uh, <laughs> Keeping people, uh, keeping people occupied in, in maybe tasks that aren't as productive. As well, we that was on. my dream job. So thanks for crushing uh, my dreams, David. Right. Uh, it, for you. This is the Silver Linings Playbook. Thank you for joining us with it today. We appreciate right. it. I'm my best. David Zervos of Jeffries. Quick programming note, Kansas City Fed President Esther George will be on Squawk Box tomorrow with more on how the Fed's handling inflation. That'll be around 8.30 a.m. Eastern time with a down now down 1,100 points. Let's get to Michael Santoli on that note. Who better to try to walk us through this market? Mike, what are you watching? Well, watching it all and get a little bit disorderly here, I, I do agree with what Danielle was saying earlier, that this generally has been relatively orderly, this entire decline. It's mostly been about just attacking high valuations, reconciling them with a higher inflation, higher yield, uh, you know, financial tightening type environment. We're some distance along uh, that path. I think what happened today is the shocks and really the severity of the market reactions to Walmart and Target and having that blast zone expand into consumer staples shows you things are getting messier. Uh, maybe longer term, that's good. That basically gets more indiscriminate. I think last Thursday and Friday, the low and the rally off that low, uh, I thought it was good enough 
to actually support a further bounce. A lot of people seem to agree with that, but good enough was not good enough. Uh, you needed to have further extremes, apparently. And also, when you basically get Walmart and Target declining as much in a day as they did last in the crash of 1987, I think you have to look across your entire portfolio and say, what did we think was actually safe? What did we think was going to be immune to these massive moves? Maybe nothing. And so I think that reconcile, reconciliation process is underway. The S&P 500 is still above last Thursday's low. Uh, we're still kind of chopping around this area. I feel like this bounce that we got for a couple of days, uh, which I was saying bulls and bears alike were like, yeah, we should probably bounce here, but everybody thought you should sell the bounce. So when it didn't continue to bounce, why not sell it now? And so I think that's the, the loop that we're caught in right now. Uh, when it comes to the, the specifics of Target and Walmart, uh, the macro implications, what it might mean for future disinflation with these high inventories, it, the market just doesn't have the luxury at the moment or feels it doesn't have the luxury of kind of projecting ahead and saying that this is all part of the pendulum swinging in the other direction and ultimately is maybe going to help the Fed and not hurt. But because that seems to be too nuanced a point for the market in a day like this. Any misconceptions, Mike? I always feel like that's what you're great at kind of clarifying. I mean, you know, to your point, this is still, and it's kind of what Danielle Shea was saying a moment ago. The market still keeps behaving in a kind of predictable or expected way, which doesn't feel like capitulation yet. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't yeah. yet feel like that moment. I don't know if we're going to get there. We might not. You might not. You don't always have every single thing line up. Um, you know, as I said, last Friday, when you got this 90 percent of volume in the New York Stock Exchange to the upside after you had a pretty good flush of the downside, you even had people saying, yeah, but maybe we weren't oversold enough. Maybe people are over anticipating it. The S&P got to minus 19.9 percent intraday from the peak. Now, I've talked about the, the odd history of 19 percent declines, not 20 percent declines throughout history when you didn't have a recession uh, in the offing and maybe the machines were programmed to play for that. So I think all those things right now are in the mix. Um, one interesting thing, you can get Treasury yields down. So bonds have a bid today. Bonds are not projecting ahead to say we know something new about inflationary pressures or what the Fed's going to do. It, they're acting the way in, arguably they ought to be acting in right. response to equity volatility. In a classic risk off kind of day, you could call yeah. it. Michael, thanks. We'll see you soon. Okay. Mike Santoli yeah. down at the NYSE. That does it for The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.